Our scripture reading is Colossians 2, verses 6 through 23. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism." in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, we thank you for your faithfulness in making yourself known to us, and we thank you for the experience we have of responding in faith to your word together with your church down through the ages. As we do this work together of studying these beautiful things in your word centered around our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit, that all of this might be good and fruitful for us as your people and for our witness in the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson from the Belgic Confession this evening is Article 25. God has spoken to us in his word. This is our confession of faith in response to his word. Article 25 of the Belgic Confession. Let us say together, We believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ended with the coming of Christ, and that all foreshadowings have come to an end 
so that the use of them ought to be abolished among Christians. Yet the truth and substance of these things remained for us in Jesus Christ, in whom they have been fulfilled. Nevertheless, we continue to use the witnesses drawn from the law and prophets to confirm us in the gospel and to regulate our lives with full integrity for the glory of God according to His will. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, with Article 25 of the Belgic Confession, we come to what I am persuaded is one of the most beautiful treasures of the Reformed tradition in particular. And that is a tradition of deep biblical wisdom in understanding how Old and New Testament fit together. That all of Scripture is God's word for the church today. Now, I want to be careful how I phrase this. When I speak of this as a particular treasure of the Reformed tradition, I mean that word treasure um, with purposefulness. It is too easy to take things that we think belong to being Reformed in particular and to turn them into barriers, walls that we put up to keep other people out. Here is the division, the wall between Reformed and not Reformed. Or to turn them into weapons. Here are ways we can win arguments with people who disagree with us. And yes, with Article 25, you can win just about any argument because it's definitely right. Or we turn it into points of pride. We take things like this and we make it, here's why we're better. All of those attitudes may or may not in a given situation be the thing that needs to happen to truly argue, debate something, to prove someone else wrong. That needs to happen now and then. But that posture as an overall posture is ultimately deadly. We are not just a Reformed church. We are a Christian church. And it matters to us that we are united with Christian churches from many different traditions, many different backgrounds. And one of the ways we express the fact that that matters to us is with the attitude with which we hold to our differences. What do I mean? Well, what we have before us, this way of speaking of Old and New Testament fitting together around Christ, is not a wall, it's not a weapon, it's not something simply to be proud of. It is rather a treasure we have to offer others. It is one of our contributions to the broader Christian church, Why are we glad Reformed churches exist? It's so that we might maintain this heritage and contribute it to the broader church. It's a treasure we have to offer. That attitude matters deeply for our own posture toward God in Christ of humility. It matters deeply for how we pass these things on to the next generation. The next generation must be able to sense this is a treasure we love and that we care about it for the sake of others. We care about it for the sake of the rest of the church that we desire others to benefit from this as well. So, with that posture of both humility but also joyful confidence that this is a good thing, I want us to enjoy together the wisdom of Article 25 of the Belgic Confession. I'm summarizing it in this way. Number one on your outline, the unity of Scripture. All of Scripture, including the Old Testament law, 
proclaims Christ and is centered around Christ. This is the great concern of Article 25, and we're going to go into the details of what it is saying, but at the heart of what it is saying is simply this. All of the weird stuff in the Old Testament, even the stuff that we don't do the way Israel did, all of those things that seem strange to us, the sacrifices, the ceremonies, all of those things, they proclaimed Christ. And they continue to speak to us because they proclaim Christ. And in that is the unity of Scripture. Even the things we no longer use, we no longer do the way Israel did, all of it reveals Christ to us. Now, that simple statement may sound simple, but there's all manner of interesting complexity in how that applies to us, and we're going to talk about that. But first, I want to look at three key Scripture passages for how we think about this sort of thing. The reading, Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy, there's all these commands about food laws, you can eat this, you don't eat this, about a festival calendar that Israel would observe, about sacrifices and ceremonies. We say, look, does this apply to us or not? How, how do, do, do we, we, we don't do it anymore? Should we do it? Are we wrong not to be doing it? If we don't do it, does that mean we're rejecting it? Three passages. First, Luke 24, these are words of Jesus after he has appeared to his disciples, after the famous story of Jesus appearing to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he said these words after his resurrection, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Here is the key word for understanding all of this, fulfilled. Jesus says all of it, and when he says law of Moses, prophets, and psalms, those were the Hebrew headings for the three main section of all of what we call the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying all of it was about him, and all of it is fulfilled in him. Now, in one sense, that tells us almost nothing, because the great question is, well, what does fulfilled mean? Two more passages. So now, remember, for the sake of Article 25, we're thinking about the commandments in particular. So commandments like, don't eat shrimp. Okay, Jesus says it's fulfilled in him. What does this mean? Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, this is from our scripture reading. In this, the Apostle Paul is dealing with, well, really, he's dealing with a number of issues. Two of the main ones converging, or or there are two main ones converging in the text that we read. Both of the issues were a matter of people telling Christians faith in Christ isn't enough and wanting to add other things to what was necessary. One of the versions was what was called asceticism. People wanting to add rules, basically being afraid of any enjoyment of the things of the creation, and wanting to add man-made rules to the Christian faith to really prove that you belong to Christ, to truly be saved. The Apostle Paul rejects that, and ironically, he says that that itself is sensuous. Why? Because it's, again, even though it's rejecting things that the body enjoys, it's still obsessed with the body as that which will define faithfulness. 
And so Paul says, These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so Paul says, in general, don't make up rules to prove how spiritual you are. But there is a more important point, or a more um, focused point, that's at issue in this passage in Colossians. And that is, Jewish Christians telling Gentile Christians they need to follow all of the Old Testament ceremonial laws in order to truly be a Christian. And Paul says no. And the key for our passage, for the sake of Article 25 of the Belgic Confession, is the reason the Apostle Paul gives. This is the point he is making in uh, the, the main point running through Colossians 2. Regarding circumcision, he says you don't need it because you've been baptized. Baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision. All that circumcision pointed to, you have in Christ, and baptism promises that. And then he refers to the ceremonial laws that we're speaking of in Article 25. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. That's speaking of Israel's festival calendar. Weekly, monthly, and annual calendar. Why? What's the reason he gives? These are a shadow of the things to come. They were foreshadowing, pointing forward to what God would do in Christ. And so then he says, the substance belongs to Christ. Those were pointing forward to Christ. Now that Christ is here, we don't follow them. They don't apply to us in the way they did for Israel. Now on that basis, many have been tempted to say, well, therefore, we don't need all of that Old Testament stuff. Well, it's more complicated than that. Listen, for example, to the words of Jesus in Matthew five seventeen and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Oh, wow, notice the contrast. Fulfill doesn't mean abolish. He says fulfill actually as contrasting with abolish. Some of you might remember from the Blue 1976 Psalter Hymnal, the heading of Article 25 of the Belgic Confession was the abolishing of the ceremonial law. That was a very bad heading, a very misleading heading. And it's very helpful that our new translation says the fulfillment of the law, because fulfill and abolish are very different things. In fact, Jesus goes on, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says it's being fulfilled in him, but that doesn't mean we're getting rid of it. The Apostle Paul, in fact, said something similar. Now, we read Colossians 2, 16 and 17 as Paul simply saying what we don't do anymore. But notice the end of verse 17 The substance belongs to Christ. And where is Christ? He is here. He is with us. And so even the way Paul says that suggests that those things that have been fulfilled, those things that we do not follow the way we did before, nevertheless, we do follow in some way. In other words, the language of our confession. You might have noticed it was a bit challenging. Well, here is why. The scriptures say both things. All of those strange laws of the Old Testament, they are fulfilled in Jesus such that they are changed, but they still apply to us. To the language of the confession. We believe the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ended with the coming of Christ 
and that all foreshadowings have come to an end so that the use of them ought to be abolished among Christians. Yet the truth and substance of these things remain for us in Jesus Christ, in whom they have been fulfilled. So notice, they're not used. If what we mean is follow those laws the way Israel did, we don't use them. But they remain with us because they've been fulfilled, summed up in Christ. So the confession goes on to say with such strong language, nevertheless, we continue to use the witnesses drawn from the law and the prophets to confirm us in the gospel and to regulate our lives. We went from the use of them as abolished to we still use them to regulate our lives. How do we say both things? Well, here is the deep wisdom of this emphasis of the Reformed tradition, this way of understanding the unity of Scripture. Summing all of that up, have you guys only filled in one blank this whole time? All right. Summing all of that up, the fulfillment of the law. This requires that we understand fulfillment correctly. Fulfillment means two things. This can move quickly here because I've been trying to build you up to this point. We have to understand fulfillment correctly. Fulfillment means two things simultaneously. A, the ceremonies and symbols of the law foreshadowed Christ and so they do not apply to us in the same way they applied to Israel. And that not applying to us in the same way is so decisive, so important, that the Belgic Confession uses words like abolish. The use of them is abolished. The Apostle Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you about these things. That is how definitive that that, that not in the same way is. But we also say, let her be. Because the law spoke of Christ, all of it continues to apply to us in Christ. So the Apostle Paul says, the substance belongs to Christ, and he is still with us and still speaks to us. Or Matthew 5 says, it's fulfilled, not abolished, so none of it passes away. That all of those things foreshadowed in Christ in a way that they are gathered up in him. Uh, One mentor of mine uses the imagery of Christ moving through the Old Testament like a lint roller. Is this a terrible image? A lint roller, as it moves over, you know, you've got lint on your preaching robe, and you roll it over it, as one does, and it gathers up the lint. As it moves across, it draws it all to himself. This is what Christ is like moving through the Old Testament Scripture. He gathers up in himself all that foreshadowed him. It's not left behind. Uh, The other image, maybe a bit more pleasant than the lint roller, would be the booster rockets, For the space shuttle falling away and no longer being needed, that is not how we view the laws of the Old Testament. Rather, they remain, and they remain with us, testifying to Christ. And they remain with us in a way that points points out wisdom about the world. Another way of saying it, Christ is the one who gave shape to all of those laws in the first place. So that it's not simply they point forward to Christ on the timeline. It is that he all along was the one revealing them, speaking them, giving shape to them. So though the use of them is abolished, they remain as speaking of and revealing Christ to us. The language of Colossians 2 
These are a shadow of the things to come. I love the image, I'm sure I've said it before in our time in Leviticus. I love the image that for a shadow to be there, the thing casting the shadow had to have been there. And so if those things were the shadow of Christ, that tells us Christ was present. He was all along the one casting the shadow, the one giving shape to those laws. And so as Christ gathers them up in himself, in many ways we can say they apply to us even more, though very differently. Because we see with clarity the heart of all of it as making Christ known to us. And so the Belgic Confession, having used very strong language, the use of them ought to be abolished, ends by saying they regulate our lives. So there's a transforming that happens, but then they continue to speak to us. This is all very high level, how old the New Testament relate broadly speaking. Well, let's zoom in and look at some more specific examples of what we mean by all of this. Number three, three aspects of the law. To apply God's law wisely in Christ, we discern three aspects. And I want to be very careful. These three are often spoken of as three different kinds of laws. And so then we divide up the Old Testament into these categories. I think that can be misleading. It can actually be dangerous. These are rather three aspects of the one law of God. So don't think of these as categories you can put laws in, though I'm going to give you examples that pretty much could go in categories. That's not the main way you should think of it. Think of it as rather as, as aspects running throughout all of God's laws. All right, what is that first aspect? Letter A, the ceremonial aspect. Things like the sacrifices, Israel's festival calendar in Leviticus 23, the food laws illustrating Israel's separation from the Gentiles. The Belgic Confession has told us three things. Fulfilled in Christ, use of them abolished, they still speak to us of the gospel, we regulate our lives. Well, how do we think of the ceremonial laws in that way? Well, think, for example, of Israel's festival calendar, the Day of Atonement. It is fulfilled in Jesus. The Day of Atonement, a, an animal being sacrificed, the shedding of blood pointed forward to what Christ would do. It is no longer necessary. We do not sacrifice animal sacrifices in that way because it is accomplished once for all in Christ. The use of it is abolished. But it still speaks to us. It still reveals Christ to us. It makes Christ known. It's not just that Christ makes sense of those things, but those things explain Jesus to us. The Leviticus 23 remains as a testimony to who the eternal Son of God is. Not only that, it makes us wise about reality. We can say things like, the festival calendar was teaching Israel that all of time had the shape of the sun, was given its shape by the sun and by redemption, and therefore we should mark time in the same way. Something as simple as, calling this the year of our Lord, 2024. Marking time as having the shape of the sun as Israel was taught to do through the festival calendar. Or through the particular sacrifices. We learn much about the shape of worship. As the sacrifices began with blood to shed, so we begin with the confession of sin. As the sacrifices ended with a meal, so we end with the Lord's Supper. And so we can say both, we do, the use of them is abolished. We don't do the thing that God told Israel to do. But because it is fulfilled in Christ, 
the lint roller gathering all of it up, it is still with us. And it still speaks to us and reveals truth to us. And so we can still, as the Belgic Confession says, regulate our lives according to those things. The ceremonial aspects. Fulfilled in Jesus, the use of it abolished, but it still regulates our lives. Letter B. The civil aspect. Civil, C-I-V-I-L. This is that aspect that spoke of Israel's particular existence as a nation. Things like the structure of Israel's government, the elders at the gates, and these sorts of things. Or the capital, pun- capital punishment, the civil punishments for theft and that sort of thing. These, uh, these laws apply to Israel in its particular identity as both the covenant people of God and as a particular nation. They were temporary in the sense that Israel's separateness from the Gentiles was anticipating the day when the gospel would go to the nations and the covenant people would no longer be simply one nation, but would rather be an international community among all the nations of the world. And so the use of those laws is abolished in the sense that they don't apply to us the way they did for Israel, but nevertheless, we can still learn from them. One of the clearest examples 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13, the Apostle Paul is speaking of of church discipline, and he quotes Deuteronomy 17, verse 7, let the evil person be purged from among you. In Deuteronomy 17, that was speaking of capital punishment, a civil law that existed for Israel as a nation. Paul takes that and in the church applies it to church discipline, a very different sort of thing. The use of what Deuteronomy 17 verse 7 says in a direct sense is abolished, but it remains with us as something we can learn from. Another example, Deuteronomy 22 verse 8, that's the one on your outline. This is the commandment where Israel is told when you build a house, you should build a fence around the roof of your house. What's the principle? Well, they would often gather on the roof of the house, especially in the evening after the sun had gone down. That's what cooled off first. And the idea behind putting a fence around it is that, well, on your property, you are in a meaningful sense responsible for the safety of those who are on your property. Now, we could say, again, we as the covenant people are not arranged as a nation the way Israel was. Those civil laws do not apply to us the way they did for Israel. If you become mayor, mayor, you are not required to go to Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, and then make a law saying everyone should have a fence around their house, it, the roof of their house. It doesn't work that way. But we still learn wisdom from it. You might think you ought to put a fence around your pool so that a child does not accidentally fall in. You might think a business owner would wisely put salt on their sidewalks when it's icy to avoid someone being injured. We can learn wisdom from laws, even ones that don't apply to us in a direct way. Again, this is the language of the Belgic Confession. The use of them ought to be abolished, yet the truth and substance of these things remain for us in Jesus Christ. Now, I've given some easy examples. There are plenty of very complicated ones. The point here is the principles. First, we must see how it points to Jesus. In the way that it is fulfilled, we must acknowledge ways it does not apply to us the same way it did for Israel. 
But for all of it, we must understand it as having continued abiding validity for us as the church of Jesus Christ. We can even say this, letter C, for the moral aspect. Now, this is not the main thing that the Belgic Confession has in view. The moral aspect of the law is usually how we summarize that part of the law that does apply to us in a direct way. For example, Deuteronomy 5, the Ten Commandments, prohibitions of idolatry, murder, these sorts of very obvious things that when God says them, clearly what he means is he's revealing the very heart of the law, what love itself actually is. But one of the dangers of, I warned you earlier about um, dividing laws into categories, ceremonial laws, civil laws, uh, moral laws, instead of viewing them as aspects, is the danger is that we say something like, those ceremonial laws and civil laws, they're fulfilled in Jesus. The moral law, it continues to speak to us. What we want to say is that all of it is fulfilled in Jesus, and that all of it continues to speak to us. So when we come to the moral law, the danger if we divide them up is we forget to first see how this is fulfilled in Jesus. This also we must take seriously. When we come to commandments in Scripture, even those that most clearly speak directly to how we live in the Christian church today, commandments in our um, call to confession this morning from Romans 13, the Apostle Paul quoted the Ten Commandments directly applying them to the church. Even here, we must see them, first of all, as fulfilled in Christ. Christ kept the law perfectly on our behalf. Christ shows us what it is to live according to the law in a way we could see in no other place. Christ gathers all of that up in himself as well. He lives it perfectly. He lives it perfectly as worship to the Father. He lives it perfectly in a way that gets to the very heart of the law, never merely as rules imposed, but as love overflowing from the inner self. In all of these ways, the moral laws are also fulfilled, summed up, gathered up in Christ. And indeed, we can even say the moral laws are in a sense, be very careful how we say this, but in a sense, transformed. That Jesus shows us the heart of the law as a matter of love in a way that was clearer than ever before. Now, here's why we have to be careful. Anything Jesus shows us clearer than ever before is what was always there. So the heart of the law as love was always the case. Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God, the book of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes the Old Testament when he says it. But he makes it clear, he reveals it, he unfolds it, he lives it, he explains it, he applies it with the greatest clarity. And the other issue, if you simply put laws into categories, is even the Ten Commandments do change. The fourth commandment about the Sabbath day, the seventh day, we do not follow in the same way as Israel. It is in the purview of what the Apostle Paul is referring to in Colossians chapter 2 when he first to let no one judge you with regard to a Sabbath. And so even that, in the moral law, in the Ten Commandments, has a ceremonial aspect that is transformed in Christ, the transition from Sabbath to, uh, to Lord's Day. Even the moral laws, we must first look to Christ he bore the penalty for our failure to keep it. He kept it perfectly. And then he gives the law to us as a gift. 
a, a good gift of his grace by the working of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to live with the grain of reality wisely in the world as God made it to be. In other words, letter D, we can say with the psalmist, in Christ, oh, how I love your law. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your law. We praise you for the ways in which it foreshadowed Christ. For all of those things that we do not do in the way Israel did, we celebrate them and we love them as being summed up, gathered up in our Lord Jesus Christ, all to your glory as our Heavenly Father. We praise you for the way all of those laws continue to speak to us, revealing Christ to us, making us known, or ma making Him known. And we ask that you would help us by your Spirit truly to embrace and love the life according to your law that you were giving to us in Christ. We desire this heart, and you alone can give us that heart. And so we pray that you would do so, that we might glorify you in all things. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.